Welcome to Global Conversations from Scotland, brought to you by the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. Follow us via scga.scot or on social media. And now the podcast. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am Professor Phillips O'Brien at the University of St. Andrews, and I am also part of the Scottish uh, Council on Global Affairs. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this, which is actually our first substantive podcast, uh, which is looking at one of our main research programs, which is looking at uh, security issues in what we're calling the wider north. Uh, And I'm particularly delighted today to be joined by Minna Allender of the Finnish Institute of the International Affairs, who is become one of the world's leading commentators on defense issues uh, in and security issues on the whole in, in the in the wider north. So, Minna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I think you're overstating that, but I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> uh, I am not overstating that. Uh, I've seen Minna now in a number of conferences, and of course, probably many of you follow her on Twitter, but her her clarity of expression is extremely important, and she has had a way, I think, to bring to the wider audience a lot of these security issues, which will be a focus of European security going forward. And another thing Min and I have been able to do uh, is uh, we've been working together actually on this research project, and we're delighted to say that our first paper has been written. And it's not so much a paper that answers anything, it's a paper that poses research questions. We, I think, I don't know, Min, I don't want to speak for you. You can take over here. My view is that this is going to be uh, an issue that now dominates security concerns in Europe for decades. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the northern flank um, now reinforced by Finland and soon also by Sweden as new NATO members um, is definitely, it has transformed in many ways. Uh, through this Nordic enlargement. And um, it will require um, a completely new level of attention and strategic thinking um, by NATO's defense planners. And we are already seeing some potential hiccups um, in that regard. So so, so this is definitely a region that uh, should be in, in focus in the coming years. Of course, we can't uh, forget the southern flank either, but um, the, the the direct military threat is definitely more acute up north than in the east. And, and I also think it would be worthwhile. We we were actually debating what the region was when we started yes, this project yeah. and how to refer to it. And we we borrowed a phrase that some other people have been used, but actually I think it's one that we both found to be quite persuasive, which is we're talking about actually what we're calling the wider north. And by the wider north, we've delineated a specific area, which is basically from the Baltic coast north, uh, up through the Arctic, and then stretching from the border with Russia uh, all the way to, say, Greenland. And it, it, you know, so it's not a, a normal region that a lot of other people have talked about. But for us, I think we see that as a, a consolidated security region. Yes, That is indeed the case. And um, basically, that is exactly what I hinted at previously about the transformative nature of this NATO uh, enlargement round um, with Finland and Sweden. Because uh, what used to be this kind of gap in the middle of the region has now been bridged. And Finland has been very essentially uh, connect the Arctic, the European Arctic, with the Baltic Sea in ways that... um, 
were unthinkable before. All right. Well, so this is our region. This is our subject. What we'll do for the rest of this podcast is uh, show you how we believe that um, are four ways that you can ask the question about future of security in the wider north. Um, and, and sort of get you out where we're going with this project and how we think it's going to develop. Now, the first question that we worked on, which is probably not a surprise to anyone who's followed uh, either of our work in the last few years or months, is what is the Russian security uh, challenge or threat? Interesting how you choose the words. Now in the wider north, and what will it be in the near future? And I'll start this one off a bit, Mina, because this is actually a fascinating question to us. And it comes directly out of the Ukraine war, that the Ukraine war, I think, changed a lot of people's perceptions, maybe not everyone's perceptions in the region about the kind of threat Russia should be. And that Russia now is seen, I think very widely, as uh, as an existential threat to countries on its borders, one that has shown a willingness to commit really unspeakable crimes in Ukraine in a war of expansion and imperialism. The counter is that, of course, Russia is weakening itself very much in the war in Ukraine, at least in the short term. The Russian military has suffered massive losses. The Russian economy is under sanctions and Europe is in some ways more united than it's ever been. So it's a very difficult question to take apart. That uh, and before I turn it over to you, Mina, to say you know, on the one hand, you, Russia is now perceived differently, and I think rightfully so, as this threat. But how do we see this threat going forward, considering the losses Russia has suffered? That's really the question, because um, before this full-scale invasion that started on the twenty-fourth of February last year. Uh, there was a tendency to overestimate Russia's uh, military capability, and uh, that led to bad policy decisions, um, withholding vital support for Ukraine um, out of fear of uh, escalation, and and because the idea was that Ukraine basically stands no chance anyways. Uh, On the other hand, now we are in danger of swinging into the other extreme, which is underestimating Russia's ability and potential to bounce back and um so you do kind of feel this mood spreading uh well looking at russia's performance in ukraine who is it gonna threaten anytime soon and like do we really need to invest so much more into our own defense now uh is there a real threat so that's why it's really important to examine this question with like very great detail I, I agree completely. I mean, it is interesting. You see, and I've heard different estimates from as few as four years to Russia would be a significant military threat and rebuild its military to as much as, as 20 years, as many as 20 years. So there's a really wide range of estimates out there. The one thing that is also striking to me that, of course, for countries in the region uh, and countries in the wider north, of course, four or 20 years is actually a short period of time. Yes, that, exactly. 
that you know, Russia will be there. Russia will be on their border in four years, in 20 years, in 50 years, assuming Russia doesn't break apart, as many Ukrainians were saying. And I think we should assume Russia will not break apart. Even so, so some form of Russia or some parts of Russia will remain geographically where, where, where they are. So, so we can't discount it either. Absolutely. I mean, my, my own view, actually, I'd like to hear you. My own view is we should assume a unitary Russian state pretty much along the lines that we have now. I agree. It's certainly in terms of planning going forward, if that turns out not to be fine. But the idea that somehow we can plan on Russia falling apart, um, I think, is not a, a, a rational basis of, of planning. Yes, uh, I agree. I think we should avoid all kinds of wishful thinking. And I think Putin and his regime um, has have been very good at uh, preventing any like regional centers of power from... Uh, mm being able to maintain themselves or emerging. So um, I doubt that there is a whole lot of potential at the moment, at least, uh, for any kind of fundamental disintegration. Mm. Of course, like I'm, I'm no Russia expert, so, so we'll see uh, what happens. But it's, it's just better to be safe than sorry, I think. That's entirely right. And, and uh, this is the last thing we'll say on this before we go to the other question. The issue we face is the short and the long term. That in the short term, as the paper points out, Actually, Russia's most capable military assets are ones that can be deployed in the wider north. Exactly. That, that, so that's it, left. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so so it, it entirely also depends on like what is your national threat perception of Russia? Is it more like is your threat perception that Russia will roll over your border with tanks? Is it rather some kind of hybrid scenario? I don't know, like, you know, instrumentalizing migration flows or something else or, or some kind of subversive activity? Or, or is it is it something like in the maritime area? Is it a nuclear strike? So <laughs> it entirely depends also on like which part of Russia's military capability and capacity are you most concerned of from your national uh, perspective? Um, and as we will uh, find out in the course of this uh, uh, this project, um, is that Russia's um, capabilities, air and sea especially, the northern fleet, uh, a lot of like mm. big parts of the, the air force, are still widely intact in the in the high north or the wider north, uh, as we as we call it. No, and 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 that's that's absolutely right. If Russia was going to make any trouble now, it would be in in the wider north, and it will be interesting going forward. What would you say? I mean, and I'll, I'll give my own perception and and then pass it on to you. Um, would be an example of sort of Russia rebuilding. Um, and and being threatening, I would actually think it's probably not going to be a large army. It's going to be a while mm -hmm. till they can rebuild this army. I'd be far more worried if uh, they start putting together more competent, as you said, air and sea forces and really start building those up. And these are the kinds of things that are going to have to be monitored. I mean, the Russia is going to have to face some choices. And the systemic question will also be a fascinating one. Do you think Russia has any chance in this rebuild to, I don't want to say go down a more liberal democratic European route, but would you, would, if say Russia begins to, to change and become post-Putin state and opens up more to the West, do you think it could be more trustworthy or it will take a long time? I don't see that kind of a development anytime in the midterm future even. Um, unfortunately, I'm quite pessimistic um, what comes to the the internal situation of Russia. It looks like 
Putin has managed to um, radicalize the society to an extent that I think it's very hard to uh, kind of reverse that development uh, anytime very soon. I'm also not sure that anything short of a very, very de decisive military defeat will convince um, a lot of Russians otherwise. Um, there was recently an article by Medusa, this uh, Russian um, like more liberal outlet, where they had asked their readers, and you could assume that it's not the most propaganda-infused Russians who read Medusa, um, about their views on the war. And unfortunately, several of them answered that despite having been against invasion in the first place, now they think that losing it will be too dangerous and can't, wow. can't happen. So that was quite a bleak outlet, uh, outlook. And, um, yeah. Well, then so, that's, a, yeah, that's a thing to think, you know, they're saying Russia can't lose. <laughs> um, and that opens up a lot of questions. So yeah. the first, the first big one we're looking at, of course, we've talked about is Russia you know, the, you know, the, the security in the wider North will have to have a focus now on watching how Russia adapts and rebuilds and, and, uh, changes going forward. Now, the second question we had, and you've been valuable on this, believe me, uh, which is the, we might say the internal wider North strategic NATO question. And that how does the integration of Finland and Sweden, and we are operating on the assumption that Sweden will uh, enter NATO at some point in the coming future. So the question is, how does the integration of Finland and Sweden change the security question for NATO? And I'll pass that over to you first, Minna, because you really took the lead on that. Well, I mean, I think this is the most significant change in, in NATO's uh, kind of structure since the Eastern enlargement in the early 2000s. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Finland and Sweden um, transform especially the, the wider North region, which we consider to um, include the Baltic Sea, uh, North Atlantic, all the way to Greenland and, and the Arctic. And this is quite new because... Um, since 2014, NATO has been kind of in the process of returning to Europe, let's say, in the sense that before that, there was a very strong focus on out-of-area expeditionary crisis management operations. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a trend to professionalize uh, European armies, which meant smaller troop sizes and focus on, on this expeditionary force model. And um, then 2014, uh, when Russia first invaded uh, Ukraine and annexed Crimea, um, that was a kind of brutal reminder that uh, also territorial threat still exists in, uh, in, in Europe. And NATO then uh, began the process of re-implementing regional defense structures, or at least deterrence. Um, what resulted was this tripwire trip um, posture in the Baltic states and, and Poland, um, which was maybe a good enough transformation mm. um, posture, but uh, not really kind of like sufficient for an actual worst case scenario of war. And this is right now what uh, NATO kind of grapples with, um, Last year in Madrid at the at the NATO summit, um, the NATO countries uh, pledged to defend every inch of allied territory. But how to actually mm -hmm. 
you know, deliver on that pledge is is uh, a whole different question. And um, NATO also um, decided to implement a very ambitious new force model, uh, increasing especially the the um, number of troops in high readiness very significantly. And there, like the the good question is like where to where to get these numbers from. So in that sense, uh, Finland and Sweden's announcement to to join NATO came just in the nick of time in the sense that um, NATO would have been quite hard-pressed uh, to deliver on, on all of these ambitions, especially in the, in the Baltic and Arctic region. Um, so Finland and Sweden in many ways revolutionized uh, from NATO's point of view the, the defense of the Baltic states mm. because they add this, um, this kind of like... Uh, we could call it strategic depth in in the sense that sense that um, they are not so so much sandwiched anymore between you know the Baltic Sea and 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 mainland Russia and Kaliningrad in the in the northern Suwalki gap. So so that eases the situation in terms of security of supply uh, and reinforcements um, from from other NATO allies. So especially the, the Swedish territory is is very uh, very vital for the southern Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Finland is essential for Estonia, especially for Estonia that the, the old Russian like fate accompli scenario loses much of its um, its um, credibility now because uh, Estonia can't be cut off from the rest of NATO the same way. So I would say that the fundamental transformation from the Baltic states point of view is that they are not anymore this exposed outpost of NATO, but now like kind of like embedded in this wider region and and kind of backed by these new allies. And it's not so much about like what can Finland and Sweden contribute to the existing uh, like enhanced war presence and, and other uh, arrangement that are in the Baltic states, but it's more about like this fundamental transformation of the region. And um, of course, this brings the Arctic closer to the Baltic. Finland and Sweden are both Arctic and Baltic countries and and will have to play a role in in the posture in in both areas. And and that is why we make the case uh, to to view this wider North region as one theatre instead of multiple. And um, that is, I think, um, the main contribution of Finland and Sweden, apart from, of course, also being net contributors in terms of uh, what they what they bring to NATO. Uh, Finland has has quite notable um, land force um, because Finland never um, quit with the conscription. Um, that was not exactly uh, in in the Finnish interest uh, because our threat environment has remained very stable, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, in the course of history, uh, Sweden has a somewhat different situation. Sweden, Norway are both now now trying to catch up on um, defense investment um, that was neglected in the past decades. But uh, the the sense of urgency is very much there. So so um, they are they are on the right way. It will take some time, but they are on the right way. This podcast is going to have a lot of agreement, and I know the podcasts <laughs> are supposed to often have debate. But I agree with you a lot. But I, I actually think we might even use this to to look forward to some really big question. I mean, I, I like you, I don't think people have fully grasped the transformative nature of Finland and Sweden, and we assume Sweden Absolutely. will go in joining NATO, that it just, 
in some ways, the debate's over. The European security is NATO now. I mean, we, Ireland, of course, is sitting there pretending it doesn't exist. But well, there's yeah. also a country called Austria. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is playing a very interesting political game mm. during this war. But again, they don't. European security is absolutely NATO in terms of, I think, the the reality of what is going on. And it, yeah, I have never seen more Norwegian military officers smile than they've smiled mm. <laughs> when they heard that, that Finland and Sweden are going in, because for them, this is basically the realization. This is what they've been planning for. But of course, a little, it, a little anecdote about how this has been perceived in the region. Estonians yeah. even released a commemorative stamp uh, to celebrate Finland's NATO membership. We didn't even have that in Finland, but in Estonia they had it. And I think that tells a lot about how this has been perceived by neighbors. It, it, it is, but it also, the, the, the interesting opportunity that it gives, and we've already seen a little bit, is the dreaded word specialization. Now, NATO has handled specialization about as poorly as it can handle anything. <laughs> um, but actually, I, I'm, and I'll say per my own view, is I, I believe specialization has to be pushed. I mean, there's too many countries in NATO not to specialize. It's yes. insane you know, to, to have tiny ar armies, navies, air forces, and all these these different countries. But it's a really difficult question. And in many ways, the opportunity, one of the opportunities of Finland and Sweden going in is that countries that can be serious about defense can also discuss specialization. Now, I'm not talking about you know, Finland as the army, Sweden as the air force, and Norway as the navy, which have people have talked about. But it's, you know, in a sense, really dividing these things up and bringing the countries that do certain things together. And I think it's especially also about regional specialization. And then, you know, like pooling uh, capabilities to an extent. Absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, how is the the integration of the Air Forces going? I mean, in many ways, this is the poster child of, of specialization yes. integration. Are the, the Scandinavian states, our Nordic states uh, are bringing together their Air Forces. How is that going? Well, I mean, exercise activity is uh, is frequent, and I think we will see it in the coming years um, how how that goes. Finland, Sweden, Norway, of course, already have a very good basis uh, because they have been doing this since two thousand nine in a trilateral framework, um, and now Denmark joined uh, this year uh, the, the initiative, and I think there's uh, there's there's no reason. Not to expect that that uh, operational results will be quite good. And one thing I would like to highlight also is uh, the Navy cooperation between Finland and Sweden. And I think this is one of the most underappreciated aspects of, of this Nordic enlargement that not many people know how uh, comprehensive the, the, the bilateral cooperation, even integration uh, in terms of uh, defense is between Finland and Sweden. So they, they really come as this kind of package deal. Uh, and and it was not only about like political rhetoric that we want to join hand in hand, but it's it's actually also a military necessity because, for example, uh, the Finnish and Swedish navies have been cooperating for 25 years, uh, and and it has grown ever closer. Um, they have also established a joint um, bilateral amphibious unit, um, which um, had the goal of like by this year, 2023, to be fully operationally. Uh, in, in full operational readiness, uh, and and the the core task would be to defend the archipelagos of both countries. So Finland and Sweden bring already these kind of structures into NATO that can be built on and expanded and enhanced. So that is why I think that is very crucial that also on NATO side, 
the question is not only what can you do for NATO, but also what can NATO do for you in the sense that so much is already there, just mm -hmm. build on it. Right now, I'm a bit worried that there might be some, some counterintuitive uh, suggestions about the command structure and defense plans that might create some divisions that weren't there before, but we can get to that later on. Well, that's the last point before we, we go on to the resilience. I think you and I both support the idea of a NATO North command, however we we're going to, yes. to phrase it, which would be very different than the NATO command structure now. How would you see that operating? What Would you have it taken the wider North as we define it? Or stretch, or would we go all the way to Canada and and uh, you know, sort of that kind of region, or you know, how would you define a NATO? And I think we do need one. I mean, right now NATO's North Command structure was based on a period where it was Norway in the yes. European. Yes, exactly. Uh, and how would then you set up a NATO command structure to take in in place uh, the North? I think in at least in the European part of the wider North, Canada is a good question because like. There's some interesting movement in Canada in terms of thinking about Arctic security, but I'm not sure that Canada is quite yet there. Maybe it would need this kind of push from the European Arctic to get also Canada on board more um, with regard to the shared uh, security concerns. But of course, the situation is also somewhat different uh, in the like like Northern American Arctic and, and in the European Arctic. Um, but I would definitely say that it would be very important not to divide the five Nordic countries into different commands, which is currently the case. Uh, Finland and Denmark are part of Brunsum, Iceland and uh, Finland, by the way, had a preference for Norfolk, but mm -hmm. got Brunsum because, well, the, the, the reason was um, apparently that Norfolk lacks the operational capacity at the moment, and especially like land force, because uh, Norfolk is very Navy and air uh focused and this would require more investment by the us and the uk which they so far have not done this this might happen in the future but for the time being finland was uh, designated to Brunson. um and uh and then on the other hand norway and iceland are obviously under norfolk mm -hmm. and there has been some like rumors about sweden actually also ending up under norfolk and not Brunson, which would be quite counterintuitive considering that Swedish uh, capability, especially the Navy, is completely tailor-made for the shallow Baltic waters and not so much for the Arctic. So so this is quite an interesting question. It kind of highlights that this current joint force command structure is not really fit for purpose anymore. And it also makes it evident uh, in terms of the defense plans how transformative this uh, this enlargement round is in terms of, of course, like it made sense to have Norway with the with the North Atlantic and European Arctic and then the Baltics with the Central European plan before Finland and Sweden joined because there was this gap. Mm. But now Have this it. gap has been filled and there's no good way to divide Finland and Sweden between these plans. So this is this is the question for the for the near term. Yes, when yeah, when when facts change, the, the people have to adjust to that. And I think NATO will have to. I think we're actually, the conversation's going so long, but we're, we've eaten up a lot of our time. I think we need to move to question three, which is a really tricky one. And outside of certainly my wheel, I'm more of a traditional you know, strategic studies person, but we have to think about security quite widely. And that was, can wider North regional resilience be improved? And, and this is something, of course, that this region has a very particular 
I think, influence on in European terms. It's a very wealthy region or it's economically fast growing or both. So we are talking about some of the the wealthiest parts um, and economically advanced parts of Europe, as well as places like Poland and the the Baltics, which are some of the most fastest growing ones. Uh, And so there are places that have to look at, you know, and, and, and will therefore play a very large role in security going forward, not just militarily, but in all ways. They are also ones that have in some cases, and maybe this is a, looking from outside, but seeming to have quite well-functioning societies, uh, that they do have a, a, a strong idea of sort of society, looking after society, or uh, in some ways you would say more advanced than than other places. So when the wider North looks at resilience overall, both economically, because it's very important, economically and societally, as well as militarily. What is it asking itself now as it goes forward? And again, and both the Finland and Sweden, as you say, they are looking at defense from this broad-based, or, sorry, security from this broad-based attitude. Yes, so all the Nordic countries, uh, or maybe let's focus first on Denmark, uh, not on Denmark, but on Norway, Finland and Sweden, which built this kind of new northern flank um, up up there in the Arctic. And um, so the challenge that these three countries face is that they have vast territories and small populations. And that is a challenge in terms of national defense, because uh, then you have to um, figure out how to make the most m- comprehensive use kind of of limited resources, especially human resources. Um, so, for example, Finland and Norway both have about 5.5 million, uh, population of 5.5 million, and Sweden is double the size, but also has a, a significantly larger territory. So um, that's why all of these countries have have one or another form of the so-called total defense concept, which includes a very, uh, very close um, civil-military cooperation. Uh, and, and there's this acknowledgement that you can impossibly uh, guarantee security of this whole territory and population, which is also kind of like, especially in the, the northern sparsely populated uh, areas where the population is really like widespread on a, on a, on a big territory. So, so you need this very tight cooperation between uh, civil and military um, aspects of, of the concept. And um, currently, this is um, best like like the, the most established and actually well working in practice in Finland because it has been, in a way, kept alive even since the Cold War. Norway and Sweden uh, scaled down quite a lot on their uh, on their focus on defense and also their capacity uh, both in in terms of civil and military um, defense after the Cold War. So they are now uh, in the process of catching up. And there's also um, this recognition that this uh, requires more cooperation between these three countries. countries. And especially the, the northern parts are a particular challenge because they are so sparsely populated, all three countries, that uh, not much infrastructure exists. Uh, there's, for example, like connectivity issues between no- Norwegian uh, Atlantic coast and Finland. This needs to be still addressed. Um, railway lines um, are not very comprehensive. And this is something that uh, really needs to be improved. Um, and um, the climatic conditions, of course, are a challenge of their own. But these countries have a lot of know-how, of course, uh, in terms of how to deal with that. 
And that is one area of uh, increasing uh, cooperation between these countries. And, and that is also very much uh, necessary. So what we talked about earlier is that this kind of specialization and regionalization will be inevitable. I know that not everyone likes the idea of having this kind of Nordic club within mm. NATO, but it's actually the only feasible way for these countries to uh, organize an effective defense because none of them have the, the resources on their own. That's brilliant into the second, the segue into the the, uh, the second part of the question that I wanted to ask about resilience. And that, of course, is the role of the United Kingdom, that you know, the Scottish Council of Global Affairs in Scotland and the mm-hmm. United Kingdom, that you know, that one of the reasons that I think that they're very excited to support this research plan is that they also see the United Kingdom as a northern European state integrated very much. It, if not, obviously, it's not a Nordic state, but it certainly is in defense terms, you might say, very much part of this grouping. Uh, my own view is that Britain should probably stop being global Britain and should focus very mm-hmm. much on its regional NATO security and that therefore should be a player. What do you think Britain could bring to the table um, to the wider north? Uh, and you know, what kind of role would Britain play or should Britain play going forward? So Britain is already the most important uh, European but non-Nordic security partner for basically all of the Nordic countries. So this has been so despite Brexit for a number of years. And, um, for example, there's this um, framework nation concept uh, led by the UK Joint Expeditionary Force, which includes the five Nordic countries, the three Baltic countries and the Netherlands, and is led by the UK, as I mentioned. And this has been a very positively viewed um, kind of more pragmatic, like a flexible ad hoc because it doesn't require unanimous decision making like like NATO as a whole. So 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 it has been this kind of idea that this could be some form of like boots on the ground and more flexibly deployable and so on. So there's a lot of uh, exercise activity um, happening within the framework of the of the Jeff and um, and it's also very positively perceived in the region. Uh, also, of course, like in terms of geography, the UK is is, is crucial. Uh, it's along the so-called Duke Gap, so Greenland, Iceland, UK Gap, which is basically the supply route for Northern American reinforcement uh, into the wider North um, in in times of crisis or conflict, and that would be exactly the line that Russia would seek to disrupt in the wider north. So um, making sure that UK is well integrated into regional defense is is very vital for these countries. And the idea is that the Nordic countries are in the process of establishing as good as possible, like own regional uh, and national uh, defense arrangements. So that, of course, we are the first line of defense for ourselves. and, And so that we can kind of like keep it up at least until, uh, reinforcements arrive from from the north atlantic and and that would include the uk and the us obviously also the fact that uh, the uk and the us are uh, the the lead nations in the in the us command uh, norfolk and and if there is to be a like new northern command um, the expectation is very much that that the uk would be a significant part of that so i think that the uk both in terms of um, shared threat perception there's no doubt that the UK has um, 
exactly the same direct perception of Russia. Uh, and, and this is quite a significant difference, for example, compared to Germany and France, uh, who had a harder time at adapting to uh, to the new reality. And and so so there's this shared threat perception that has been there for a long time, uh, which has made UK a natural uh, close ally. And 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 then there's also, of course, the geographic fact of uh, of UK being in a very strategic position uh, in terms of keeping keeping the supply route open to our region. I mean, I, I, yes, I mean, I think this is very important going forward. And I think this is actually one of the rules that we need to talk about, because the UK has gone through a very difficult few years. You know, on the one hand, Brexit brought out, we must be global Britain, which is a bit silly in my mind. You know, if you're leaving the European Union, you're actually going to become smaller and less influential. But this is an opportunity now going forward for the UK to sort of recalibrate and decide what it is. And it, there is an internal debate in the UK about how its armed services are going to be funded. And actually, the army seems to be losing out, which is controversial, but in my mind, not a bad thing. And what you know, the Britain should actually be doing is an air-sea power in many ways, which helps, as you say, you link the North Atlantic to the, the wider north. And, and this is something that I actually hope the UK – makes an even higher priority going forward. Last question. Now, this is uh, a very interesting political question, and it's about cooperation. And this, the, the specific question um, is, what are the most pressing issues now and in the near future that require cooperation with Russia and the wider North? And this is one, I'm going I'm to begin with a, a very brief story where, of a conference I was at a few months ago. And it was from people from academics from across a number of them from different parts of Europe. And this question of cooperation with Russia came up. And you do a number of, of, of those from, we might say, Western parts of Europe were saying, of course, this is very important. We need to identify cooperation, talk about cooperation with Russia. And someone from a country bordering Russia said, no, we don't. And that was really a fascinating moment to me. It was almost one where sort of scales came from my fell from my eyes. I'm like, wow, because this person said, no, we don't have to talk about cooperation now. Russia is now invading a neighbor, committing a form of genocide against a neighbor. That is the overriding priority now is defeating that. And cooperation is all well and good, but you can't be even spending much time thinking and talking about cooperation until that occurs. And that was one of those, it was a fascinating moment for me because it really, I thought, opened mm. my eyes. And looking at that, you know, when, when doing this question, we really had to think, okay, what can or should there be cooperation now? Because I don't think we want to pretend everything can just go back and that we're going to have this world where where you know, we're going to go back to the way it was. It's not going to go back to the way it was. Now, we identified two issues. But first of all, one, what is your view on that overall view of, of cooperation with Russia and how it should be addressed? There are two problems with it currently. First of all, cooperation, especially if it's supposed to be win-win type of cooperation uh, and not just kind of cleaning after Russia. Um, that's that requires trust between the participating countries, and there is absolutely no basis for trust right now. Russia has so fundamentally crushed any kind of basis for uh, 
for trust in its good intentions that I don't know. Like the question is then how do you define the conditions that would need to be met um, after this war and in, 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 in the final settlement of this war so that anything could be resumed? What would it take to rebuild that trust, which has been so comprehensively lost now? Um, the second problem is that Russia already has a track record of being very good at using issues that are real concerns to, for example, the Nordic countries, such as environmental issues um, or scientific cooperation um, as kind of a screen for its own like national interest that might very well go against the interest of the countries participating in the cooperation. I think the um, environmental issues are the best example. The Putin regime has not been very serious about anything environmental and the Nordic countries, Finland, Sweden, Norway, all of them have ended up um, investing a lot of money in different um, environmental projects that have essentially helped clean up a problem that Russia has created. And um, this is a pattern. Furthermore, the, Russia has been very good at using this narrative of Arctic exceptionalism. So this, this idea that uh, the high north, low tension, uh, which was a Norwegian policy slogan, and in general, this idea that the Arctic is a piece of, uh, or, or, or a zone of peace, of, uh, peace and cooperation, um, as a kind of a screen for its own military buildup of, of, the, of the region. So um, there is this fundamental issue of trust, and I don't see how we can how we can get over this right now or in any or anytime soon. So if cooperation on some absolutely pre- pressing pressing uh, matters is uh, resumed with Russia at some point, we can't be naive about it. We have to assume that Russia may well uh, use it to its own advantage, which may turn out to be our disadvantage. Well, this, I mean, and this will be the last thing we bring up because already this conversation's gone on a lot longer than we <laughs> thought it was going to be. Um, we highlighted two issues in this section, um, one of which is a space, and we won't go into space now, but just to say you, we will be talking about space issues going forward in this project, and there's a lot, I think, of important things. The one that also was mentioned is this terrible situation of dumped toxic nuclear um, waste that is off the shore of Russia. Uh which does require, from my understanding, and you know it better than I do, does require certainly some pretty serious consideration right now. Uh, and that's one you know, for countries in the north that they have to take very seriously. But on the other hand, Russia is doing what it is doing and making it work. I mean, every, the longer the war goes on in Ukraine and the more crimes Russia commits, of course, the more it destroys any hope of cooperation uh, for a long time afterwards. But so you're confronted with this conundrum that there is this waste that has been dumped that needs to be at least, if not cleaned up, controlled. But on the other hand, you have Russia. So what do you do? I think the nuclear waste issue is an interesting one because the estimates about how urgent and how big an environmental threat it poses vary. Uh, but I think it really illustrates 
or it's an illustrative example of Russia's uh, behavior. So uh, the Soviet Union had this uh, habit of, of dumping nuclear waste, especially from its nuclear-fueled submarines um, and from the nuclear tests uh, conducted in the uh, um, Novaya Zemlya uh, archipelago in the Arctic into the ocean, uh, kind of like out of sight, out of uh, mind uh, type of uh, arrangement. And um, of course, the Soviet Union didn't admit any of this, and the extent of it kind of like only came came out um, properly in the in the early nineties after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then different um, initiatives were started to address the issue and lift as much as possible uh, of those like more than there still remain more than thousand pieces of radioactive wa- waste in of the Russian uh, Arctic. Coast and some of them are not as uh, pressing as others, but there are, for example, two whole uh, nuclear submarines lying, lying there. Um, one was deliberately sunk in the 80s, um, and it was at least sealed off uh, some somewhat. But this sealing was meant to last only for 50 years, so that means that it could start leaking in the next decade. And the other one was lost accidentally while being towed in early 2000s. So it went down uh, with a significant uh, amount of nuclear fuel and with no sealants at all. And um, so to what extent it also poses an environmental threat to, for example, the fish stocks there, which is a very vital interest of Norway's. Um, in any case, um, it would be great to get it out. And, and, and Russia actually, Putin had... Uh, announced to start um, working on it and and to get it get get everything um, lifted by 2035. Um, that was in 2021 uh, when Russia took over the uh, the presidency of the the Arctic Council. But now, obviously, this is no priority at all. And uh, I think one of the most interesting details about all this, um, and which is really illustrative, is that Sweden and Norway had invested. Um, millions of their currency in uh, into equipping a Russian vessel uh, with the necessary um, well equipment to, to deal with the nuclear waste. But what Russia did with it was that it used the vessel in its nuclear testing program. So, so this is kind of like the basis uh, that we need to be aware of and kind of presume that is likely to happen if we engage with Russia. And, and try to try to act in good faith. It's unfortunately unlikely that in the near future Russia will be cooperating with us in any any sort of good faith, no matter how pressing uh, the issue is for Russia as well. It's just extraordinary, and it's one of the things that I knew very little about before I started this project. And yet, you're faced with this absolute disaster. On the other hand, what do you do about it? Well, I hope at least you've had through this discussion, everyone mm-hmm. listening, a, an attempt to for us to outline why we think this is important and and where it's going, this project, because this is something that I think that is going to be for the coming decades, a really major question. And all I would say is, you know, Min, on behalf of SCOGA, thank you so much for being part of this project. You know, it's going to be at least something hopefully we'll be working on for for going forward. But it's been enormously uplifting for me to do it and thought provoking. And I, I also think it's important. So, Thank you very much, Mena. Thank you for having me in on this, and I can only say the same. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to the first Wider North podcast from the Scottish Council on Global Affairs.
Thanks for listening to Global Conversations from Scotland. Find us at scga.scot and subscribe through your podcast provider.